if you're brand new, I want to welcome you. My name is Danny. This is Tom. We are two of the pastors here at Kessie Church. We are uh, experiencing a lot of change at our church, as you can see, also quite a bit of growth. So uh, to keep things kind of uh, running as smoothly as possible, we do these monthly to every six-week updates. We call them Tom Updates because Tom is our executive pastor, and he's in charge of making sure everything goes smooth in our church. He's the smooth pastor. That's actually also what we call him. Uh, Tom is overseeing our downtown project. Uh, for those of you who don't know, we have a facility downtown that we are getting ready to remodel. We've had it for close to a year, and uh, we, we own it outright, but in order for us to move into it, we are in the process of getting a loan and remodeling the entire thing, including turning the entire auditorium around and adding a new entrance, an elevator, and some other great things. Uh, so we've been in the process of uh, of kind of putting that all together and making that happen. And so I'm going to have Tom uh, update you about that and a bunch of other stuff that's going on at Kesson. So will you just give him a hand, please? Well, good morning. Um, so you guys, you are such a faithful, faithful church. Danny, these people give faithfully and... Um, it has just been amazing. And you guys remember 2017 was by far a record year for us uh, as Kessa Church. And I'm happy to announce that for the first three months of this year so far, we're well over $30,000 above our projected giving. Just in three months. And it's, it's just amazing because, you know, as elders, we sat there and we go, well, well, man, I mean, 17 was a great year. Let's just, maybe we didn't have enough faith. I don't know, but... <laughs> But we just said, Let's, it'd be great if we could do what we did in 17 and 18, and God is just providing amazingly. So I just want to say thank you. Thank you for your faithfulness. Uh, on top of that, our building fund uh, is a couple thousand dollars over what we projected there. So again, the building fund money is still coming in on top of the amazing giving that we're getting to the general fund. So I just want to say thank you. And then April so far is looking amazing. Um, there's five Sundays in April, <laughs> Woo! Uh, which is which is awesome. I wish every month was like that. I'd like to throw in like six or seven if we could, but yeah. I don't think we're allowed to do that. So, um, But anyway, thank you again, you guys. Um, I also want to uh, announce that starting next month, we're going to start a nationwide search for a full-time youth pastor here at Kesson. Um, this person will oversee our middle school, high school, and college age groups. As you know, Chris is doing this now along with many, many other things. This will allow him to focus on some some things that he's really passionate about. And so pray for us, pray for the right person to come. And I uh, just wanted to, I'll give you a regular updates on that too. So uh, would anyone like to hear about our building plans? Anyone? <laughs> Are you sure? <laughs> no. Uh, I am happy to announce that our building plans are in for permits. Finally, yeah. Woo. So, um, yeah, this is, this is a picture here that... Uh, <laughs> we document everything here at Kesson. Yeah. Every win. Yeah. Uh, I normally don't write, you know, I don't, I'm not happy when I write big checks on behalf of the church. I was happy to write this one because this gets us into the city. And so the process has started for the city. We're excited about that. Um, so I, I want to report that. And then just if any of you are new to Kesset, our attendance numbers continue to grow. So if you want to know more about the downtown project, uh, what we're doing, contact me for sure. 
Uh, again, you know, our demo will be starting here shortly, too, of the building. While we're waiting for permits, there's certain things we can do demo-wise. So we're just excited to get started. So that's my update, Danny. Yeah. Can we just appreciate Tom? Yeah. Um, I have my own Tom update. I shared with you guys as the lead pastor of this church, uh, I think three weeks ago or so, that I discovered in the midst of a staff meeting that not only our executive, smooth pastor Tom, but also our children's pastor, Keith Walther, had not seen Mary Poppins. Um, <laughs> of which was nominated for like, I think it's 12 or 13 Academy Awards, won five, uh, is listed as a national treasure, that sort of thing. Um, and so I put it upon myself as the leader of this church to carry the burden of, of responsibility in order to make sure that happened. And so I'm happy to report that as of Friday night, the entire staff got together with Pastor Tom and Keith, who sat in front of me to make sure no one left and watched all of Mary Poppins. So this is a picture of their Mary Poppins watching certificates. You can get up closer if you want. Yeah, it says Certificate of Achievement. This certifies, is certificate is hereby awarded to Keith Walter for a completion of watching the movie Mary Poppins, signed by the Kessett family. Also, there's Tom's in the back. So um, I take my responsibility serious here at the church, and I want you guys to know that. When I mean for stuff to happen, it happens. And so uh, I also want you to know, that's a really long movie. I don't know the last time you guys have watched it, but it's like well over two hours. By the end, I was like, I need my own certificate for watching this. But, uh, but yeah, so we accomplished that. I want you guys to know, I'm so thankful for Tom, uh, Keith, the whole family. You guys are just an incredible church. Recently, we had a baptism and worship night, and uh, I just wanted to start off my portion of today's service with uh, sharing that video with you, a recap of that. It was an incredible experience. We'll do another one as soon as we can, uh, probably when the building opens. It's probably how we'll start the uh, grand open. The building is some sort of baptism worship night, and uh, it should be incredible. So please watch this, and uh, let's, just, let's just thank God together for all he's doing in our church. I'm so glad that you guys are here today. We're wrapping up the Lord's Prayer series, and uh, I want to start off today with kind of an apology. Um, I was planning on doing the series, and we are still wrapping it up today over three weeks, and each series has been like drinking from a fire hydrant. It is so much information and, and so wide and so deep, and so 
uh, I'm going to continue to try to do better to, to understand what the, what the Spirit of God is doing in our church and continue to be amazed by how much information, you know, we can pull out of, out of like four verses. I mean, it's just incredible, five verses. It's just incredible to see uh, the way that God is moving when we're so hungry and thirsty for Him. But uh, today is another big service, um, so hopefully you're, you're feeling ready and your arms are good. Yeah? You feeling good? Because I'm, I'm going to go for it today, I'm just being honest. <laughs> I don't know if you guys know this, but uh, when I started preaching, uh, my very first youth group, we had, uh, I don't know, if, is Melissa here today? I don't know if Melissa's here. Is she here? Yeah, this is Melissa. Melissa was actually my very first youth student in my actual youth group. Um, and she's hearing impaired. And so I've been with an, with an interpreter my entire preaching um, life because of Melissa, thank God, right? How cool is that? And, uh, and not just Melissa, but our entire deaf community that, that we appreciate so much. So we appreciate you guys very much. And uh, it's just a cool thing to be, to be a part and to have a partner. And so, uh, but I do feel bad. I feel bad for services like this because we're going and all I got to do is move this and, and you know, he has, to, he has to do so much more. So uh, we sure appreciate our, our, uh, our Deaf and Deaf Plus family. We appreciate our interpreters that help out. And uh, it's just, it's been really neat to, to see that ministry grow. So, all right, I digress. Let's start off with reading uh, the Lord's Prayer again. And then we're just going to focus down on the last verse of the prayer. Matthew 6, 9 through 13. It says this. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven... Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And this is the verse we're going to focus on today. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Um, This is an interesting passage to preach on because the first thing I have to do is kind of remove out of your mind what you think I'm going to preach on. Uh, I, I don't want to, I couldn't, I, I, I was actually hoping to play like an intro verse, a temptation intro verse, but every single church intro verse had some woman in a red dress proclaiming she was temptation. And that's, 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 a, that's a concept of temptation, but that's not temptation, nor is it how I think we need to look at women, especially my daughters, right? I don't want them sitting in a service like this and being like, oh, okay, so if I wear red or if I, my dress looks like that, I am temptation. And so I searched and searched and searched, and every single one of them had some degree of seductive, uh, womanly, kind of alluring. And I want to I just start with, that's not what we're going to talk about today. Now, it doesn't mean that for some people in the room, that's exactly what you think about with temptation. And as you're going to see in just a moment, that's okay for you to walk into this experience with that in mind. But it's not as common as you might think. As a matter of fact, today, the way that we're going to approach temptation is very mechanical because temptation is actually very, very mechanical. It functions in a very specific way in order to uh, access parts of us that are given to us by God. It's a lot like a big magic show that you go and see and the gentleman pulls a rabbit out of a hat and you're like, that's so unbelievable. Today we're going to turn around the table, take off the hat and the curtain and show you the hole in the cage where the rabbit came from. Because when you begin to understand the mechanics of temptation, suddenly, like anything else you learn, you go, oh, I know what you're doing there. I know what you're doing there. We've talked a lot here about Rooted. Rooted talks about this inside it. Again, today's the last day to sign up. If you want a course 
where you spend 10 weeks really understanding how Scripture teaches you how to see these kinds of mechanics do that. But emotional, healthy spirituality is more than any other thing we do here about this kind of stuff. Because when you begin to be whole on the inside, then you begin to see mechanically how you do things that affect your life. And, and this is a hard thing, but a, such a profound thing, you also begin to see it in other people's lives. The more therapy I've done, the more on my own internal emotional journey that I've done, the more when I sit with someone, I'm like, oh, that's not me. That's your stuff. And I don't have any more anger because they're coming at me with things that are real for them and valid for them and big for them. And they're so big that they're actually a little bit out of context, which tells me, if you spend any time in emotional health, that this is something bigger than just my behavior. This is, this is you. This is something that impacts you. A lot more grace can be shown. A lot more relationship can be fostered because you can see the mechanics and behind the curtain. So temptation is no different. So I want to unpack it for you. The big things that we're going to talk about when it comes to temptation today is how it works and how to be delivered, be delivered from it. So the first section of the verse says, and lead us not into temptation. This is an interesting rendering. As a matter of fact, it's, it's looking to be changed uh, right now by the Catholic Church. Lead us not into temptation because it's such an interesting way of saying it. The easiest way to understand it is uh, I, heard a, I heard someone that was reporting on this said, but we need to understand it's saying what God isn't doing. And so it's like the woman who went to dinner with her friends after meeting the son-in-law, and they said, how do you like him? And she said, he's not objectionable. So the idea is that we ask God to not lead us into temptation because, of course, as we're going to find out, he doesn't. But to really understand how temptation works and why that phrase is worded that way, let's look at two different things. First, the word lead. This word could be translated just as easily, and it is in other passages, as carry. Do not carry us into temptation. The word temptation in and of itself also is an interesting word because it means to attempt or try. It's where we get the base word from attempt. It means to try something, to look at something. And so the verse, in essence, is saying, do not allow us to be carried away by the things we try. Okay, by the things we're trying, by the things we're attempting in our life usually to fulfill something that God has put within us that is being warped by this world and used in a different way. We'll talk more about it. James 1, 13 through 14 says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, look at this phrase, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Again, do not allow us to be carried away by the things that are already within us. Now, this word carried away uh, often can be used uh, uh, in different ways for God leading. God carried his people into the desert, okay? God led his people into the desert. Also, this word tempt can be used in multiple ways, just like it's used to attempt or to tempt as in test or try. Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. This is when uh, Abraham is being tempted or tested by God to take his son up upon a mountain and sacrifice him. And he says, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. Now, the idea behind anything that God does that is presented as a uh, tempt or test or try is always to reveal something about yourself and, more importantly, something about God. So when God takes Abraham to the mountain, we know that in the small world, Big to Abraham, but small to the rest of us in a sense. He's teaching Abraham about himself, about his heart's desire, about the reality that no one in this room should love anything more than God. And that, that includes the people sitting next to you. 
Because the people sitting next to you are just as broken and flawed as you are. And if you love them more than you love God, then their truth may outweigh his truth. And as we've talked about many times over and over again, he is the only truth, no matter how wise your grandmama is. (laughs) Got to love God more than your grandmama. A good grandmama would teach you that. Got a lot of amens on that one. Bunch, bunch of mainly from, <laughs> mainly from grandmamas. Amen. That's right. Not a lot more than me, but a little, but not a lot. Okay. <laughs> Growing Christians, they need to understand. I like this quote: that circumstances are means of exposing us to our true character at any stage of our spiritual growth. Abraham learned about himself, but also he learned about God. On the bigger world scale, the capital. Uh, G, capital C, church scale, we learned what God actually did for us because he actually followed through with the sacrifice of his own son. We got to see the anguish in Abraham. We got to imagine the anguish in our own lives. And then here comes the New Testament and Jesus is walking onto that cross and he is the ram. He is the lamb. He is the one. And there was no father there to save him. As a matter of fact, he walked into that place. So this test taught Abraham about himself and it teaches us about God. So this is what it means when God tested us. As a matter of fact, James says it's a blessing to be tested in this way by God. One twelve, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. God doesn't tempt us. God doesn't tempt us in a way that is anything but trying and for our benefit. But he does allow us to be put into situations where our faith then can be tested and strengthened and we can discover these truths about ourselves. So what are some of the truths that we can discover about ourselves to approach temptation mechanically? It's hard to do because temptation's all kind of colorful and passionate and usually warped with, you know, good smelling things and food and pleasure and happiness and joy and a a promise of a better version of you. But the reality is if you just took a step back to look at how the rabbit came up out of the hat, you would see first off that it speaks directly to you and how you're built. I teach this at Kesset a lot. I'm gonna continue to teach it at Kesset. I'm gonna bring it up today. One thing you need to understand about sin is that it's embryonic. Sin is embryonic. So one thing you can stop doing when people tell you they're born a certain way is say, no, you're not. Yeah, they are. All kinds of people are born in all kinds of broken ways. I met a three-year-old that wrestled with more rage than anyone I'd ever met in my life. And genetically, so did his dad, and so did his grandfather. And they wrestled with it, and it was their truth. It was, it was the truth, right, that they were people who were just genetically predisposed to to just lose their minds when things didn't go their way. Now, that's not an excuse, but it doesn't mean that your three-year-old who's genetically uh, predispositioned to read a book perfectly and then ignore you when called for dinner, right? It, 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 it really brings a lot of freedom to at least the discussion to be able to know that sin in my life is embryonic. And if you've ever raised small children, my three children, all of them were completely different people at three years old. They all had beautiful things about them, and they all had broken things about them. And their beautiful things were different, and their broken things were different. I'm the same parent. My first child, my son, was flawless. Like, to the point I actually begin to judge other parents. I was a pretty young parent. And like, what's your problem? Watch this. Gabe. I was like, unbelievable. He got in trouble one time at the church. He was like three and a half. I set him out on the foyer couch in the church we were at. I forgot him. So it's during setup. 
He stayed there two services, three and a half years old. <laughs> Nothing to do. The kid was just rocked in. I mean, he was solid. Like, I had parents asking me for parenting advice, and these are older folks, and I was like, I, listen, it's just hard to understand. It's my philosophy and my theory. <laughs> the mistakes we make in our early 20s. Oh, man, I was so bad. And then God gave me a redhead. It's 100%, nine months old, the girl would scowl at everyone. Just look at you like, what you going to do? You going to touch me? I will bite you. And she did. People were like coming to me now, giving me books. I don't know what happened in your life. Maybe it's something in your marriage, but here's your, it's a great book on biting children, you know, and I'm like, Gabe, read this. Tell me what it says, right? That's the kind of, that's the kind of stuff that... My point is, it's embryonic. It's built inside you, right? It, it is part of the fall. I'm not making excuses. I'm just giving you the freedom to enter into a conversation. People are often born with these kinds of things already wired in them. And a lot of times, it's not that hard to see. The truth is that temptation, because it feeds on the way in which we are most easily uh, driven, specifically by sin, is in a way embryonic. It's not that hard to figure out based on the way in which we fall, how then to put things in those places that cause the most damage in our lives. It's very important to understand this though about temptation. It in and of itself is not sin. Temptation in and of itself is not sin. We know this because Eve was tempted in the garden before she fell, before sin entered the world. And we know that Jesus himself was tempted for 40 days. Temptation in and of itself is not sin. Now, this should be incredibly freeing for some of you because you live in so much shame that your mind wanders to these things that you're drawn to, and then the devil comes in and goes, I can't believe you fell for that. I can't believe you're so gross and disgusting. I can't believe, I can't believe. When in reality, there is a brokenness within the human race that causes us to want to do bad things. Now, again, no excuses, but at least have a conversation. When someone says to you, man, when people talk bad to me, I just want to punch them in the face. Instead of being like, man, grow up. Be like, whoa, let's talk about that. Did you experience that? Did your, is that part of your legacy? Is that part of your story? I know people, it wouldn't matter how much you poke them in the chest, they'd never take a swing, ever. They'd come steal all your stuff, though, <laughs> late at night, pop your tires. They'd never take a swing, though. They'd look at you like, oh, no, man, no, it's all cool. And then the next night, they're <laughs> right? Anybody have friends like that? Yeah? It's just better to fight it out in the front yard than do that. That stuff's expensive. That's all I'm saying. Like, those are my expensive friends when they have problems. Like, let's just fight this out. You don't got to pop any tires, man. After you learn people like that, you become way different in fights. You're like, you want to get an ice cream? Because I'm cool. These are brand new. These are brand new, brand new toys. <laughs> you know, don't, don't. <laughs> It's just the reality. It's just people are, are born to lean towards certain things. The devil knows this. And so, of course, it makes sense that mechanically he tempts us this way. But don't allow shame to crowd in upon your soul when you find yourself tempted or lusting about something or looking at something. And don't also feel shame or embarrassed the fact that things tempt you that don't tempt other people. This is called being human, and this is a real-life talk. I told you I was, I'm bringing a lot of information. This probably should have been three talks, but, but just, just, you're just going to have to receive it. Uh, when my wife and I first got married, I hadn't shared with her that I have a love for all things Mopar, specifically late 60s, early 70s, right? 
She didn't really know what that meant until I brought home inside our marriage my first plum crazy purple roadrunner, which was a giant, long, only can go straight car that she said was absolutely worthless because in every way imaginable, it wasn't a car for a family, which I disagree. Huge back seat, right? Uh, car seats, you can do like four car seats in a row back there. Uh, I mean, you know, it wasn't the best. And so I sold it and I bought a Hemi Orange Roadrunner. And uh, true stories are all true stories. My wife said, why can't we buy a Saab? And I said, that disgusts me. <laughs> Eventually we bought a Saab. But the point is, the point is some things that, are drawing to, that draw you out don't draw other people out. So live in a world of reality where, where you see behind the curtain, get rid of the shame and say, okay, there's things that tempt me because of how I'm made. Doesn't mean it's good, doesn't mean it's right, but be aware they exist because this is what it means to see temptation and understand how it works. Temptation, again, is not a sin. Uh, Jesus himself, I said, was tempted. I just want to make sure I highlight that a little more. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one in who every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. When I tell you temptation is not sin, I'm serious. The Bible is serious. These are mechanical gifts given to you to, to, to speak against the enemy's lies that you are bad because you want from somewhere deep inside you certain things. It doesn't mean those things are going to bring fruit to your life. But at least means you're able to have a valid conversation based on biblical truth instead of being told these things that, that click for you uh, make no sense and, and have no reason whatsoever within your story. Temptation by itself, if you just want to look at it by itself, can be described as any disorienting, defiling experience when evil is presented as good. Okay, it's presented as good. Any disorientating or defiling experience when evil is presented as good, that's what we're talking about when we talk about a temptation. People generally aren't tempted to do great things for others. They're usually tempted to take something inside their story that, that, that is intended for good, things like finances, uh, sex, happiness, joy, security, things that God gave us as tools in order to bring these sort of, this sort of balanced life perspective that inside temptation becomes disorienting, defiling, and therefore is presented to us as good even though it's evil. Sin comes from within us. And it often comes from dwelling on these temptations rather than driving temptations from our mind. The sad part is what most people don't realize, they say, I was tempted and now I'm paying a consequence. But actually, I'll put this on the screen, it's not temptation that hurts us, but the consequences of our sins that bring us so much pain. It's not actually the temptation that hurts you. That's why it should be fairly safe now mentally for you to talk about this thing in your mind that you know if it was presented before you today, you'd have a hard time resisting no matter the cost to you or anybody else. But it is the cost that is the consequence of sin. The temptation is just part of the fall and part of the experience. Temptation functions much like a mirage. It's a hallucination that parched people sometimes experience out in the desert. In a temptation, this thing we'll call the mirage moment, occurs as we are tempted, as people, by a vision that promises happiness. Some shimmering oasis 
of promise, joy or relief from despair appears where God says it shouldn't. So you're, you're out in this place, you're on the road for work, you're at work, you're home alone on the computer, and these things are tools to be used in specific ways, to bring funds in, to, to, to gather information, to, to accomplish tasks. And suddenly within that place, there's this oasis of happiness that the world says you can find there. But we know it's not true. God says that it's false hope. This mirage's appearance taps into our real desire to be happy. Our disorientated emotions that we talked about a moment ago begin to respond to this desire with a feeling of hope. And suddenly we're faced with a choice. We're faced with a choice to either be drawn in to the compelling image the temptation has put before us or to rely on God's promise. We are at this point tempted but we have not succumbed to sin. In this way, temptation is a destructive force dressed up to look like happiness. At the end of the day, all it's really ever promising you is a better version of you. It's promised you to be the source, promising you to be the source of that better version or a better marriage or a better dad or a better worker or a happier life. Oftentimes, it comes through a position of you're going to miss out. You're not going to meet the, the qualifications of the person you dreamed you were going to be unless you partake. Sin only occurs when we believe that this destructive lie can actually grant happiness. That's when we cross that line and mechanically step into sin. The, the most notorious mirage moment in history is recorded in Genesis 3, and it illustrates for us today a pattern consistent in all the temptations that we face. We have Eve in the garden. Eve has been given every glorious thing. As a matter of fact, Eve's greatest downfall at this point is nothing. And it's a downfall because she's never experienced anything but joy and happiness and goodness and perfection. Even her husband was perfect, ladies. Can you imagine such a place? That's why it's her and the serpent because he was overdoing dishes, sweeping up, cleaning. She was relaxing under a tree. It's just a perfect world, a utopia right? While Adam was doing his chores, it says chapter 3 verse 1, <laughs> the serpent who was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, pretty much all the trees, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst or the center of the garden. If you touch it, you shall die. So he approaches her with the truth that she is to not eat of a tree, but he kind of wraps it in this truth that you can't eat of any tree. So she corrects him by proclaiming she understands what God's intent is. Hey, listen, we have free will here. We can do what we want. We're not robots. We're not automatons, right? We can function. And so God puts a tree in the middle and says, you have to make a choice to be my servant, to be my child. And if you choose the tree, then you choose death and destruction because I am your only source. And the serpent comes to her and he says, did God say this? And she said, well, yeah, he did say that. And then the mirage moment happens, verse four. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. This mirage moment that Eve had 
it is really a moment that it shows how the mechanics of temptation work because it takes what we think we see and it gives us another option. Look again at verse six more specifically. So when the woman saw with her eyes, so she saw something different because of the way the serpent positioned this thing. She saw with her eyes and she saw that it was good. Again, okay, holiness at this point is within her. She is only built for good. So Satan comes and leans into exactly what she's built for and says, hey, did you know the apple is, bad English, gooder? He says, you're built for good. You're built for joy. You're built for more. Did you know the apple? It's what gives you more of this greatness you already have. She sees it. She sees it. It's a delight to the eyes, and she desires it. She reaches out for the mirage. And at that point, what she said is, God, who is my source, is not good enough. This apple can make me like him or even better. And so she takes of this apple. And again, we know that, of course, at this point, that sin was conceived and born spiritually into the world, James 1, 14 through 16. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed, there it is again, by his own desires, the stuff inside him. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Again, that's the consequences of the deception that kill us. So do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Again, this is how temptation works. It speaks to that embryonic place within us. It promises happiness and more happiness. It promises security and more security. It says this life that you think you're living, trusting God for your day to day, trusting in his will as the prayer said, trusting that he forgives you. No way. I have a way to take away all that stuff. Just go sleep with her and you'll feel awesome. Just go sleep with him and you'll feel awesome. Just take this hit, take this drug, keep that money aside. No one needs to know. Just, just build up security, 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 so that if anything happens in this world, you have a blanket to fall back upon, and that's what you care about. And you say, in essence, God, I want what I want more than I want what you want. I want to be the source of my own pleasure and my own purpose. And that's exactly what happens to her. Now, Jesus, Jesus faces a similar mirage moment. He faces three of them that we know about, but we know according to Scripture that he actually uh, was tempted the entire 40 days that he is carried away, by the way, by the Spirit, led by the Spirit, tested by the Spirit to go out into the desert. So you're understanding where that earlier verse ties into this verse. Jesus is carried away into the desert, led out into the desert to be tested for 40 days. He's tested. First, his physical body is tested because no matter how God Jesus was, he was also fully human and his body was weak. So at the end of the 40 days, Satan came to him and said, turn these stones into bread. Then the next thing we know that Jesus came to do is he came to proclaim himself king, that he is the source. And so Satan takes him and places him on thrones all around the known world. I've, I, I've always, I, can't, I can't fully envision what this would be like, but I imagine he's suddenly kind of appearing in these great kingdoms around the world that didn't even know each other existed. And Satan says, I have reign over all this, and I'll make you king of it all. That's why you're here. You're king of kings, lord of lords. I can make that happen. He takes the good thing in Jesus, the holy thing in Jesus, the embryonic, if you will, thing in Jesus and says, I can do that for you. I can make you more than this suffering Lord that, that, that's headed down this path of terrible pain. Then lastly, he takes Jesus to the church in Jerusalem. He puts him on a high steeple of the church and he says, fall down because we know scripture says you'll break no bones. 
Angels will come and heal you. And then you know what will happen, Jesus? Everyone down here in this church that you've been ministering to, these people who've been cursing you and against you, they will know that you are the Messiah and I can make that happen. Just fall down. He takes all the things that our Christ came to do, the holy things, the good things, the things that we're built to, and he packages them and he returns them and he gives a new perspective on them. This is why for so many of you right now, you are engaged in so much damaging behavior and the saddest part about it is you don't even know it because the thing God built in you that's good, this desire for happiness and joy and contentment, the thing that's built inside me to be the Danny God has called me to be that thing, Satan comes. He doesn't come against something completely different. He doesn't challenge us with sobs when we want roadrunners, right? He's smart. He brings exactly what we want just a little bit different. Maybe a little bit sooner. Maybe sort of backdoors it. Maybe we have to steal it to do it. Maybe we have to take it from another person's marriage. Maybe we have to take it from another person's body online. Whatever it is that this desire to be close, to be intimate, to be connected, suddenly this desire to feel euphoric, all these good things that God has given us, he takes and he goes, I can do that in a much cheaper, easier, faster way. This is how temptation works. And when you begin to see this, then you can face it. When you begin to see it, you can understand that's a mirage. It doesn't mean I should go there. Satan set before Jesus all of these mirages to tempt him with faithless promises of divine happiness, whether using food or a crossless path or a public demonstration, a test of his divinity. Satan was to, trying to corrupt Jesus' holy God-given desires. But in that same verse, we're promised deliverance. Matthew 6, 13b says, but deliver us from evil. It's part of the prayer. It's the close of the prayer. It's as if every single person that's ever going to exist is going to find themselves here because you're all here finding yourselves right now. I'm here. I wrestle with this same exact stuff. I had a group of people come to me when the church was around two years old and said that the church was being built too much on my personality and I needed to lean more into the Bible. Could I tone it down a bit? And, and it was said in such a loving way and usually prefaced with one of those phrases, the Holy Spirit told us to share this with you. Do you know those people? Yeah. Uh. And so I listened. And for almost two months, I wrestled with my wife and some other folks about, can I do this job if, if I don't fit into what all these other pastors fit into? Can I talk at the speed I talk with how many verses I talk? I'm told it's impossible. You're only supposed to be able to retain 15 verses, by the way, a Sunday. That's what you've been categorized as, 15 yeah, we've done 150 in one Sunday before. And at a rate of which I guess as a speaker professional, I'm not supposed to talk at, but I'm not only talking, I'm being interpreted. So I don't know who it is that, that is making up all these rules, but for two months I had actually thought about that. And I got to a place inside myself where I kind of tried to preach real straightforward, like, and then God wanted me to tell you that. And, and it was so difficult, and I, couldn't, I just couldn't do it. And so finally, I was freed by this, by some other people and some prayer and some discussion. Ended up preaching on one Sunday after I said an incredibly funny thing, and everyone was laughing, that I wanted the church to know, Jesus thinks I'm hilarious. <laughs> because here's what I realized. All these personalities mixed inside this room, right? All that stuff that's put inside us that makes us human, that's all designed by Jesus, all by God. It's all, I loved my son and his straight-laced approach to childhood, and I loved my daughter and her crocodilian way of living. <laughs> I loved it. I loved them both. They were of me. I got it. I could see it. I didn't mind. 
I had to learn how to deal with each one. I figured out real quick what tempted them, what didn't. But the reality is I'm built this way because God made me this way. You, have, you know how hard it would be to practice to be like this? This just happens, people. This just happens. The joy of my life's whole life. It's unbelievable, right? It's just, it's just so amazing that we see people and we judge them because they're not like us without realizing God made them not like us on purpose. We need to be people who are willing to be delivered into our own futures. Not my future, not your future. I want to be delivered into my future. I want you to be delivered into your future. But deliver us from evil. The Bible promises it will. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up underneath it. Do you know what Jesus did every single time he was tempted? He responded with scripture by declaring out loud, it is written and I know what you're doing. It is written and I know what you're doing. Do you know what he said? I saw where the rabbit came from. I'm not impressed. Every time, every single time, it is written and a corresponding verse that said, I saw where the rabbit came from. It is written, I saw it. It is written, not such a cool trick. You're really not that good at this, Satan. I'm God. I'm the inventor of rabbits out of hats. I'm the inventor of miracles. I'm the inventor of, of passion. I'm the inventor of intimacy. I'm the inventor of all these personalities. And when we be, are able to see behind the curtain of this warped world, that view that Satan wants to give us, suddenly we get freed to be even more passionate, even more intimate, even more connected, even more relational, even more euphoric than any drug or, or experience could promise. And guess what? This is the best part. Ours lasts. The relationships last. The joy lasts. In heaven, we are going to be able to experience everything we were promised, but it does mean that we have to see behind the curtain now so that we live our lives as if we're already there. Jesus proclaims out loud every single time, revealing the tactic that Satan used upon him. Maybe we should try this. Here's three practical things that you can uh, declare in order to be delivered from your temptation. The first one is try asking this out loud. It often breaks the power. The question to ask is, is this gonna make me a better me? Is staring at the screen for the next half hour gonna make me a better me, a better dad, a better business person, a better human being? Is engaging in this illicit behavior gonna make me a better me? Is what I'm doing right now gonna bring hope to the people I love and care about? How is it gonna add to my legacy? And by the way, if you wanna define legacy a little bit better because it's a big word, big Facebook word right now, the thing that we care the most about, the things that are most critical to us are things of significance, not things that are successful. Success comes and goes. There's been millions of richer people than you, smarter than you, who lived hundreds and hundreds of years before you, and they're still smart and dead and were rich, right? You're, you're, you're not really building anything that lasts other than your significance. The, uh, recently, I shared that I got to spend just a few minutes with Pastor Tom's father, who was my grandparents' pastor. I was carried by hand, like a lot of the children are in here, down to Tom's church, which was down the road, his dad's church, down the road from my grandparents' house. And what's so incredible about this man is that you wouldn't know his name if I said it. He doesn't have his name on a single building in town. He's significant to a lot of people, though. My grandparents, you'd never know them. They're World War II vets. 
They did good stuff, but they lived in a little 800-square-foot house that was my safest place on the whole planet when I was sick. She used to make me white, buttered, sugar sandwiches. White bread, butter, and sugar. What? Is that a depression thing? Or somebody used to tell me, but I loved them. I was like, the best grandma ever, right? <laughs> but, but, but true story, this was significant for me. To this day, right, I still eat ketchup with scrambled eggs because my grandpa said you're not allowed to eat it any other way. I go to restaurants, if they don't have ketchup, I'm like, I got to go, take it back. They're significant to me. You are significant to people. When the mirage hits, when the, when the temptation's there, ask it out loud, declare it out loud. Is this significant to me? When you do so, suddenly you begin to see different. Another thing you can do is not just say it mentally, but as I said, say it out loud and look at scripture. Declare like Jesus, it is written and take your stand on a promise God has made to bring you joy. Find a verse. Look up the specific thing you're studying. Get a book, get an audible book. It doesn't all have to be just this. Get things that are based on this that tie into how you learn embryonically, right? Whether it's visual. If you're visual and you hate reading, go find movies. Go find something that deals with what you're dealing with. For guys in the room that deal with lust, just, right? Probably six or seven of us in the room that deal with lust. Um, there's a movie out right now on Netflix called, is it The Heart of Man? Is that right? The Heart of Man. Watch that movie if you're a visual learner. You can watch it with your spouse or not. But it, it, it was powerful. I shared it with like eight of my friends. I shared it with eight of my friends. And it impacted a bunch of them in a very specific way because it's how they're built. This is the kind of stuff that you can do, okay? You try asking it out loud, declare it based on scripture, and last, fight it. Fight it with real hope. Fight false hope with true hope, with the hope of Jesus Christ. Ask him for help. Ask him for care. Ask him to lead you and to guide you. Ask for the Father's strength. That's exactly how Jesus' story ends. The Father comes and ministers to him through angels, and he wants to do so to you. You will not be tempted beyond your ability to withstand it, but you've got to declare it out loud. You've got to build it on Scripture, and you've got to ask for God's help. You have to. Guys and girls, you have to. Men and ladies. (laughs) All of this is helping you determine to hope in God, not a shimmering, hopeless mirage that Satan's going to use. Psalm 42, 11 says, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Hope in him, hope in him, hope in him. And lastly, and I think for some of you this is really, really important, after you, you do all this, still expect the mirage to be tempting. It's like having a chocolate cake, and you're like, well, I'm really tempted. I love chocolate, and I love cake, and, and I shouldn't have it. And so you go out in your yard, grab some gravel, and you sprinkle it over the cake, and you're like, now I'm no longer tempted by chocolate cakes anywhere. No, you're not tempted by gravel chocolate cakes, because that's disgusting. It would bust your teeth. But you still have a chocolate cake problem. So stop just because you're doing these things. These are ways to get out. Stop not recognizing the mechanics of how temptation work in your life are still going to be there. The reason temptations are hard to resist is because hope is hard to resist and you're hardwired embryonically for hope. Temptations threaten us with missing out, I said earlier, on happiness or less misery. We're going to skip on some suffering if we go do this. Sometimes suffering is good. Sometimes it's important to get tore up a little bit. Stop expecting this not to happen. God made you to hope. He made you to be happy. And that mirage has promised you those things, but it's not real. Last, don't allow your passions to be your dictators. 
This is really important, coming from a guy who lives off of passion. Lives. I'm going to be in California next week. I told my wife, we only have to see one thing, In-N-Out Burger. She's never been. I, I actually thought less of her for just a second. When, and then I realized the Mary Poppins stuff, and I was like, I got to work on this. This is something broken in me. And I said, I will disciple you all the way to In-N-Out Burger. I'm passionate. What is wrong with me? Why do I have to lead everybody to something? Right? Why can't some people just not like Mary Poppins or In-N-Out? I don't know. But I'm just built to discover what it is in you you haven't yet discovered and say, it's that way. Right? So understand that that's cool, Romans 6.12, but the reality is it shouldn't lead my life. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Passion's good, but it's not put there for you to obey. Three things to realize. One, emotions are gauges, not guides. All this is in the notes, by the way, on the app. You don't have to write it all down because I'm moving quick. Emotions are gauges, not guides. I really feel like I should do this. So what? So what? That's the worst. That's, that's my favorite argument. I, I tend to debate a little bit. People will always start with, or I'll try to get them to start with, how do you feel? Well, I feel like I should do this. Who cares? I don't say that, but I think it inside. Who cares? When the reality is I, I should care, we all should care. But just because you feel something doesn't mean it's true and doesn't mean it's good for you. Second, when it comes to your emotions, they are indicatives, not imperatives. They're not end all. Lastly, when it comes to your emotions, they are to be directed, not to be directors. Emotions are awesome. But vet them, check them, trust them. Lastly, temptations, if you can see them this way, and this is so valuable and so important, are never truly as strong as they feel. They just feel strong. The rabbit just seems to appear. The coin just came behind your ear out of nowhere. How did a coin even get in there? When you can see behind the trick, suddenly there becomes some more reality. I like this quote to wrap up. If we can identify all false promise of hope, declare the true promise of hope, and expect to then weather some disorienting emotional urges, the mirage will dissipate, and our hope in God's promised happiness will strengthen. It's still going to be tempting. It's still going to be alluring. It's still going to be specific for you. Satan's just that good at it. But if you can weather that storm, if you can proclaim out loud that, God, you're bigger than this. I need help. Is this good for me? Is this good for my family and the people I love? Is this significant? Then you can find yourself on the other side of that place stronger, bringing glory not only to Uh, your life for overcoming help to others, but also understanding more and more of him. This is what it means to be delivered. This is what it means to ask God to help us in this situation. Closing prayer, Luke 22, 40. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Jesus reminds us this is something that has to be on our minds all the time because it's on Satan's mind all the time. I challenge you today, as we move into this time of communion, to come forward in this particular communion as we close this series, thinking about the blood of Christ, thinking about the cross of Christ, thinking about what he overcame. What is in your life that you've replaced the cross of Christ with that you've been tempted to believe is your source for more? What is it in your life? What is it in my life that I exchange for for joy of God or even, even 
the joy of trial and suffering and learning because I don't want to go through all those hard things. I just want to be the me God promised me to be right now. What is it that you are exchanging? Because we're all exchanging something. We're all struggling with something. And this communion is just that. It's supposed to be an opportunity to come forward, to take the bread, to take the juice, and to go before God and say, God, what is significant in my life that you want to highlight? You built me for something. You built me with this personality, with these with these, these things, and because of the fall, yeah, there's some warped stuff that, that Satan can use, and I've made some mistakes, but we did a whole forgiveness talk last week, so you should be all refreshed. Not at ease, because forgiveness is a daily thing, but you should at least be in a place where you can have this conversation. I think it's why it's at the end of the prayer. I think it's why it comes right after forgiveness, because once you're forgiven, now you have to realize Satan's going to come at you even more to pull you back into that stuff that kept you living so unforgiven in your mind for so long. So come eyes wide open today. Recognize the cross. Recognize the power of it. Recognize the blood. Recognize that God wants you to live this life that he built you for, and Satan wants to use exactly how you're built to live a life he's designed that will bring you and the people you love destruction. Check your behaviors. If you need help, okay, if you need help, you can write in your communication card, I need help. There's classes. There's, there's for men only classes. There's, there's also rooted if it's something that can be, can be understood better. There's the emotional healthy stuff. There's uh, for women only classes. There's all kinds of things that we can do to support you, to help you on this journey. But don't pretend it's still not going to be tempting. Don't pretend it's going to go away. Face it. Pull that sheep back. Look at the mechanics and say, God, I'm with you. Show me what to do next. Amen? Amen. I'm going to have the worship team come out, and uh, for communion today, I'm going to have you do it on your own. I'm going to still, uh, uh, I'm going to still uh, read it for you, but uh, I'm going to have you uh, take it in your seats because I really think today is very personal. It's a time of kind of reflecting your story and where you're at, and so uh, we are just going to uh, read in Luke chapter 22, verse 19. Jesus was sitting with his disciples in a community like this. He had bread and he had juice. And he said, he took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. He says, do this and remember what I brought you. Remember where I'm bringing you. Remember that I'm alive and I'm well. And I want alive and well for you. I want joy for you. I want new marriages, new stories. I want new songs in your life. I want you to live in freedom and forgiveness. I want you to have a community and relationship. I want you to call one another out. I want you to sit with one another in silence. I want you to grieve together and bring glory to me together. And it all starts with this cross. It all starts with his story and the way that he is offering himself to you now. And so I'm going to ask you to come down in just a moment. Take the bread, take the juice, go back to your seat. And anytime during the song you feel ready, take that bread, take that juice, identify yourself with Christ and ask him to change your life, change your ways, give you eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to love and hands to hold. Let's be church to each other. Let's be church to this community. Let's bring God glory with our song in our time of communion. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for everyone in this room, for their story, for the way that you have walked with them right to this place right now. 
I ask God that this would be a significant moment for these people as they come forward. That it would be about a, a mark in their life to change something that has pulled them under, that has brought them down. I ask God that today they would experience freedom in you as they identify with you, the great bringer of love and forgiveness. Thank you for your cross. Thank you for your blood. Thank you, Jesus, that you love someone like me. You're so awesome. You're so awesome. We sing our songs for you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Come forward as you're ready.